0: Starting this thing off, give us a little bit about why you do what you do and what exactly is it that you do? How would you describe it?
1: Um, sure. I mean, I do – maybe I'll start with with what I do. Yeah. Uh, I write a lot and I teach. Uh, I lead retreats uh, m- m- predominantly. I write and teach about uh, meditation and mystical philosophy. Uh, And I do that because it's what I'm the most uh, in love with and what I care about the most. So uh, just very brief overview of my history. I was an engineer. Then I was a school teacher. I got involved with uh, a spiritual community that I lived in for 20 years uh and it was a very practice intensive community I had uh profound and deep spiritual experiences mainly as a result of that much practice and that community came to an end about eight years ago or so and um uh, at that point, I was I was a very prominent member of a of the community, and we were a global organization. And uh, initially, I was unsure what I wanted to do, uh, but fairly fairly quickly, I I realized that you know sharing sharing the potential for spiritual freedom and mystical illumination with other people is the only thing I'm really interested in doing. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, it became the obvious thing to do, and I've been, I've been, you know, doing that ever since. I was doing it before inside a community. I, I've been doing it on my own uh, ever since. So I would say that's why I do it.
0: That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's a very honorable endeavor.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it, it doesn't. It just feels natural to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it feels like I I can't imagine anything else I'd want to do, and mainly I just feel grateful that I'm, uh, you know, able to do what I love the most, yeah, and, yeah. you know, earn earn a living doing it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't need that much, but as long as I can keep earning a living doing what <laughs> I love, then I'm doing what I love. What do I care about anything else?
0: Yeah. Yeah, you're earning a monetary living, but I would also probably say that you're earning your own... Uh, freedom like I I, you're granting other people a sense of liberation or at least guiding them to liberation I would also say maybe you know you could agree it's granting you a sense of liberation right like definitely it's it's a win-win for everybody
1: oh it's it's the greatest possible life Um, I spend time with exactly the kind of people I love to be with people who are spiritually inspired and interested i just finished a 5 day retreat yesterday um okay. which had uh in person it had 12 12 participants 10 in person and you know I, I there's no better way to spend your time than with a group of people who are all as passionate as you are about you know spiritual matters so definitely it's my freedom it's my joy you know it's the sharing, both in written form and in teaching, has just become a, a just a, a very important part of my own spiritual path, and it's the means for my own growth and development at this point. Mm.
0: So how would you describe to somebody that doesn't know any better what exactly you write about, what exactly you speak about, You know what these retreats are for? How would you describe that to somebody that has never been exposed to your work?
1: Sure. Well, I would say you know the way that I look at it, uh, you know, spiritual growth uh, is has two has a, is a two step has two phases, and the first phase is spiritual freedom, and what that means is we are all uh, we're all born, you know, into a human circumstance. We're all born into a life. We're born into a into a personality um, or it develops, let me change how I want to say this. People who come to me have woken up, right they're awake, and they may be they may be only a little awake or they may not even know they're awake, they may be dramatically awake, but they're awake, which means to me very simply, awake means that moment where you realize there's more to life than what you've been told mm. when when suddenly the The prescription for a happy life that you uh, absorbed from your culture no longer feels like enough because you've seen in some form or another that there's more is possible than that. And so when that happens, you wake up in the middle of a life. And it's a life that you created before you were awake. Uh, And... So the first thing we need to do is liberate ourselves, not necessarily from the circumstances of our life. Nobody knows what might need to change in manifestation, but we need to liberate ourselves from the habits and patterns of thinking and feeling that developed in that life. So we all find ourselves embedded in habitual ways of thinking and feeling, and perceiving, and embedded in assumptions about who we are, and what's possible for us, and what reality is, that now we're starting to question. And so the first thing we need to do is liberate ourselves from all of that, all of the machinery of mind. And a great deal of spiritual work is all about just letting go of the habitual patterns of mind, and finding this dramatic freedom where one realizes all of that mind stuff is just mind stuff. You know, all of those thoughts, even the ones that are you thinking about yourself, are just recorded thought patterns. They aren't necessarily true. And so you can really step back and experience a dramatic sense of freedom from all of those patterns, all of that conditioning of your life. You know, and that's a necessary Step, you could say. That might be, you know, that's amazing. Anyone who experiences that degree of freedom, you don't necessarily need anything at that point because you're free. You're free to now live uh, and as a, in a completely different way. But you also might be driven to explore higher potentials higher possibilities, sort of mystical realms of being that do exist beyond our normal, ordinary sense of reality. And for those people who are feel compelled by that, what they want to use that foundation of freedom for is then to embark on a journey into non-ordinary realms of being, non-ordinary realms of experience. And I feel deeply compelled to explore non-ordinary realms and a lot of the people that uh i find you know want want to work with me are also compelled so so i would say those two things the first the first element being that real dramatic liberation from the patterning of the mind which i think everybody would love you know there's nobody that wouldn't that doesn't feel like their mind is driving them crazy sometimes yeah. uh And then the mystical pursuit, which is, you know, probably a smaller number of people would feel compelled to explore that. But those who do are quite compelled by it.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's great. So it's like the first step is realizing that there's more than meets the eye, more than what we've been told at least. And then the second step is, I guess, going with that, going with that wavelength of... um, of the really the divine mystery that we find ourselves in and Mm -hmm. um, yeah, staying with that wonder and curiosity. But first it starts with gaining a sense of sovereignty, right? At least like you feel like, oh, wait, I don't have to abide by, you know, X or Y idea of who I thought I was or who I was told. It's it's really about paving your own way in life, right? Like I right. guess that's that's the essence of freedom. That's why we call it liberation. It's right. liberation from the stories and from the conditionings of the past. And then thus um almost like becoming like the main character of your own story, right?
1: <laughs> I, absolutely. I like to use the exa- the metaphor of uh an invisible fence. You know, if you have a pet like a dog, you you can create an invisible fence, which which means you start with an electric fence and You know The dog, if it gets to that edge, it gets a little bit of a shock uh, when it touches it. After a while, the dog stops touching the fence. So then you can turn the electricity off and the dog still won't walk up to the fence because it doesn't want to get shocked. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, eventually you can actually take the fence down so that the dog doesn't even see a fence, but it still won't walk past that perimeter. And so in some ways, we're, we're all a little bit like, you know, trained animals that have lots of invisible fences that we've learned not to cross that boundary. And what often happens when we wake up is we cross one boundary that we, that we thought was uncrossable, you know, we we move past one impasse. We do something we didn't think was possible. We experience something we didn't think was possible once, and then even if it's a little thing, you you cross that, and then you start to wonder how many of these other boundaries might be invisible. Yeah. You know, maybe there's nothing that is actually holding me down. Maybe these are all invisible fences, and I can go anywhere. Uh, and you know, when you <clears throat> when you realize that you don't know what the boundaries are, right? That that's awakening is a sense that you don't know what's possible.
0: Yeah.
1: And sometimes people will talk about anything's possible as if everything is possible. But you know, that's not true. Everything's not possible. There are some things that are not possible. Uh I can't have lunch in Paris in an hour. It's just not possible, mm-hmm. right? But when you don't know what's possible authentically, you have this you have the feeling that anything is possible. You know, because you don't really know what the edges are. And that's, you know, when when you start to experience that, an ordinary life doesn't really feel like it's going to cut it anymore. You know? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. suddenly you want to find out what the real edges are. You want to find out how far you can go.
0: Yeah. That's so true. Mm. We can go pretty far. Yeah. <laughs> we can go definitely a lot further than we've been told, that's for sure.
1: Absolutely.
0: Mm. So what would you say is the, uh, the reason for this search within people, you know, this, um, this search to go far, the search to dissolve the boundaries of what we've been told? Is it... Um, Is it just like mere play, mere curiosity on someone's part? Or is there um, a certain alignment that somebody can reach in this? Like, is there the kind of orientation in one's being that comes from this search? Mm. You know what I'm getting at?
1: I think so. Let me try something and we'll see. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I love to study uh, mystical philosophies, and ideas. And, um, you know, if you look at various traditions, whether they be, you know, more traditional traditions or esoteric traditions, you know, you see a lot of similarities, you know, yeah. what they call the perennial wisdom. And to me, creation at its source is, is, an, is a kind of energetic, pure potential. It's, it's pure possibility before anything exists yet it's it's the possibility for anything to exist mm-hmm. and you could call that energy you can call it a lot of things but but i think pe- i think that's what people call god that's what they call the divine um that's what they call i don't know the life force you, yeah, you know yeah. universal whatever words are useful to you it's the source it's where th- everything came from is coming from right now and there appears to be uh, an impulse towards manifesting all of those possibilities. You know, if you, if you kind of look at the natural world, you think, well, what's going on here? Well, growth really is going on. It just it seems like growth is part of the inherent order of reality. Everything's always growing. Everything's always getting bigger. Everything's always realizing more and more of its, of its form, and it's in its potential, and I feel like humans are the same way. What do we innate in us is a desire is a desire to manifest our full potential right and if you almost almost anybody that thinks about it, you know can relate to the idea that they they want to manifest their full potential they you know it's like it's like you want to take this human vehicle for a test drive. Let's see what it can do. How far can it go? How, high, how fast can it drive? You know, um, <clears throat> what can I do in this form? But then, uh, you know, human beings get beaten down by life, by circumstances, by ideas about what's not possible, and we can end up being resigned to being much less. You know, we, usually we have big ideas when we're younger and then we then part of what we call the maturing process is limiting our expectations, you know to quote unquote match reality uh but I think we all feel a bit suffocated fundamentally because we somewhere we know that there's much like you were saying earlier, there's much more possible for us than what we've been told, and that's not just us that impulse in. In you or in me, to realize our full potential is not just a personal impulse that Jeff has or Gary has it's a universal impulse which is what's kind of propagating through the whole of reality is a desire to manifest and realize all potentials uh, and so I think that's where you know that's why it's not it's not it's why it's not as you said, it's not completely random. It's not just, it's not just doing it for the hell of it. Uh, It's also doing it because you want, you want to expand into your fullness. Uh, And I think, I think everybody can relate to that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Um, Yeah, that was good. So it's like, Going off of that note, I guess what I was getting at it's like yeah, it's not fully like we want to expand at first, right? Like there's this sort of sense of innate expansiveness in one one could say is the spiritual search, right? We just wanna we want to figure out what it is that we are, what it, what all this is, who am I, what what is really going on here, right? It's mm-hmm. this sort of it's just a it's a search, but I guess what I was getting at is like does it eventually come to a sense of contraction like a sense of um unique expression within one's humanly vessel right so it's still like from that expansiveness we found out what we are and what we're not and then the search kind of i wouldn't say it ends but it it gets a little bit more precise a little bit more you know what your dharma is i guess you could say so from that expansiveness and realizing what you are you you manifest in in your own dharma in your own way in your own karma as the perfect expression of uh of of god but also in your own separate form you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so it's like at at first it seems like this grand spiritual uh, uh expansion and then eventually it seems like the search doesn't necessarily end but it contracts into a very perf- more perfected form um
1: hmm.
0: yeah Express- yeah uh, no i think
1: sense? that's no that, that totally makes sense and uh you know i would i would only want to add that i think the path can be different for different people so there do seem to be great realizers who it seemed like their destiny in this life was to just expand and remain in this expansive state indefinitely mm-hmm. um you could argue that that is their manifestation, so yeah, <laughs> you know we we'd be getting in a fine point, but uh, but just with that caveat of i I do think everyone's path is unique, um, uh, what you're talking about is, is it essentially is in terms of your you know very particular, unique expression of yeah. that expansion in the way that I teach, I call that the artistry of possibility. Uh, mm, I like and I, t- I talk about the fact that not, not it seems that not everyone necessarily, but many of us, certainly me, uh, as you go and, ex- and, and experience the non-ordinary expansion of your being, you also feel compelled to bring that back into manifest expression through your own vehicle, through your, in your own life, in your own particular way. Uh, in my case that involves a lot of writing of books a, a lot of teaching uh some art you know just various ways that i want to be able to express these uh you know non ordinary possibilities and i see that in people all over the place you know that there is a desire to act as an artist of possibility which which means you you expand experience Possibilities that that aren't manifest yet. You know, you see things that don't exist yet. You experience things that aren't aren't in in the ordinary world available, and you want to make them available. You want to create that possibility in manifestation. Uh, there's a great essay by a uh, Christian mystic named Evelyn Underhill. It's from about a hundred years ago, and it's called "The Mystic as Creative Artist," uh, and I. I republished it as a small book, but it's all about the various ways in some of the mystical traditions that some of the great realizers have have endeavored to bring back, uh, you know, the breadcrumbs of their experience in order to create a, a essentially a, a map mm-hmm. or a, a trail that yeah. others could follow to to find those same states. So. I mean I love that essay and and it's always been uh it's always been my my interest so I have a friend uh and colleague his name is Jeffrey kripel uh he's at Rice University uh he'd probably be a great guest for you someday um he studies mystical states and uh paranormal experiences uh, from From the perspective uh, of being a religious scholar, uh, mm-hmm. and you know a lot of what he talks about, which really resonates with me, is that mystical experiences and paranormal experiences uh, they aren't just experiences that a person has, they are sort of higher dimensional possibilities that are calling themselves into existence. They're, yeah. they're sort of looking for someone sensitive enough to hear them, see them, oh. perceive them, in order to invite the possibility of being brought, you know, into deeper manifestation in whatever form, the person, you know, the person and, and that, ex- that experience, that higher dimensional being, are kind of working together to bring those possibilities into manifestation on earth
0: wow, yeah, that's interesting. It's almost like they're a life form
1: exactly like a higher a higher order life form uh that wants to invite manifestation
0: Wow, yeah, that's pretty powerful mm. wow
1: <laughs> you know the way, the way that I think about it, and these are things. I've I've I haven't really written about this except in my fiction works uh and in an upcoming book called um the soul's journey to wholeness uh, but as I see it you know there's that infinite potential which is the original source and that is the divine that is god that is heaven you know how, whatever that's nirvana that's that extreme and From that, you know, the the kind of three-dimensional ordinary earth plane has become manifest and is being manifest in every moment. And we have the opportunity through this artistry of possibility, by exploring uh, higher realms, the realms between earth and that, you know, absolute place. And encountering the possibilities there and counting the higher energetic forms of life that exist there we have the possibility to begin to manifest those in in this realm so that we can bring this realm closer to you know that's what i think it means to bring earth to heaven
0: wow yeah yeah i had this strange realization of um, uh, visualization when you were describing that it's like we're it's like two different timelines coalescing to merge into one. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I just, I pictured like um, time in a way in one side, even though this is obviously it's not, this is just a metaphor, but sure. in my head, it was like time going one way and then us going the other. And we come and meet at this like omega point, you know, we come yes. at the middle, but that's through our creativity. Wow, mm-hmm. yeah. It's like we're we're still writing the book here. We're still writing the story. We're still building heaven in a way.
1: Exactly. So Mm. have you heard of the French theologian uh, Teilhard Desjardins?
0: No. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. So Teilhard Desjardins spoke about the omega point. This is what made me think about it because you just used the term. Mm. So so he had a, a spiritual view very similar to what I just laid out, that there's this infinite possibility, which is God, and then there's us. Through our creative acts, we are evolving, developing, growing toward that omega point. All heading to some final union, yeah. Uh, which, which he called the omega point. It's the it's the final ending where the pure possibility that was there at the beginning is completely met in manifestation by the manifestation of everything. Um, wow.
0: Yeah. That's the transcendental object at the end of time, as yeah, kind of says that's right, oh wow, and the thing is, do you think that possibility is ever reached? you know, is this actually ever boom, it's there, or is it more so just like something in our being that we reach, like something in our hearts in our souls mm. that we feel as though is a possibility, but maybe it's like an it's an infinite possibility. It's a that it's an eternal possibility, and maybe that's what one can mean by eternal life. Like maybe that's what one can mean by like having this sense of immortality. It's like it's almost like a perspective shift. It's a it's a different way to view yourself in in your creativity, and that's where immortality comes from. It's like a you shift the lens by seeing this omega point not as this external idea but as some kind of internal dwelling.
1: Yeah. Huh? No, I like that. Um, and I would agree with you. I don't see that, oh, that final culminating omega point as something that could actually happen because uh, as another American philosopher, Charles Sanders Peirce said in his philosophy, every time we manifest a new possibility, that manifestation creates new possibilities that didn't exist before. So before we had uh, say the computer, once we developed the computer, we then developed a whole range of possibilities that couldn't exist until there was a computer. Yeah. So, so you never, you never reach the end point because every time, every step you take in terms of manifesting, you push the end point further off. Uh, And so it is an, it's an infinite journey. And I think the, The place of solace within ourselves is the place where we recognize that we are on that journey, that we are moving in that, you know, that that's as as a human being, that's as good as it gets, you know, you're, you're, you're heading in the right direction and then you just go and you go as far as you can in this lifetime and maybe you pick it up in the next lifetime and, you know, who knows how it works.
0: Yeah, that's pretty powerful kind of like the way the Tao right
1: mm-hmm. absolutely wow. definitely
0: that's some powerful stuff man yeah it's like we touch upon this current that transcends the um the comings and goings you know we transcends right. the impermanence the the seeming impermanence of all of the phenomena in our life it's it's some kind of current of eternal creativity. It's this eternal novelty. And from that novelty springs even more novelty. It's quite beautiful.
1: That's right. So, you know, it's, you're, you're saying fantastic things. Um, Charles Sanders Peirce is an American philosopher, very little known. Uh, he was an inspiration to Teilhard Desjardins. But he, he wanted to think about, okay, what is, what is the universe actually made of? Right? Mm-hmm. Because... Uh, And he looked at Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher, and he said, and Kant had all these categories. Reality is made up of time and space and causality, and I think there were 12 of them. And Peirce said, well, I don't think so, because I think all of those evolved. I think time evolved. I think space evolved. I I don't think the universe didn't start with time. It didn't start with space. Uh, And he would imagine things like, at the beginning, every moment was a completely random moment, you know, there were, and then eventually two moments that were sequential showed up one after the other, and twice as much could happen in that. And so it had a survival advantage. So then there were more of those, and then eventually there was a four. And now so much evolution has happened is we only ever see sequential moments, you know, only very occasionally do we experience a non-sequential moment, you know, Mm Some some moment where you get popped out and you go, oh, oh that was weird. Um, <clears throat> mm-hmm. So, in thinking about it, he said, "Well, the only two things that had to be there at the beginning were novelty, and this is why I, this is what triggered it because you were just using the word were novelty and habit. You know, because there had to be the potential for new things to arise; otherwise, nothing would happen." Yep. And there had to be the potential for, for those new things, there had to be a tendency toward them happening again, at least to some degree. Otherwise, it would just remain chaos forever. Uh, and, and he said, if you, the universe had to be more or less an equal amount of novelty and habit, because if it was too no, if, if there was too much novelty, eventually things would spread out into chaos. And if there was too much habit, eventually everything would solidify into non-movement. Uh, it wow. would just become bound. So those were the two fundamental principles that he imagined had to be there at the beginning.
0: That's good. Yeah, novelty and habit, that's how we reach a balance.
1: hmm mm. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, you could even take that into our own lives as well, into our personal lives. You know,
1: you definitely can.
0: In order to reach that balance, you got to have a a sense of novelty, but it's got to be controlled. Because, like you said, it could be chaotic if because really everything. If you really get down to the nitty and gritty, everything is novel. Every single moment of our lives is novel.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: <laughs> it has to be kind of, uh, you know, it has to be constricted a little bit with our habit, or at least the, the mindset of habit or ritual or patterns, right? That's how the mind works. So I can, I can see that. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Wow. Oh man, I don't even know where to go from here.
1: Well, let me, let, me, let me share something else with you. Another yes, French uh, scholar His name is Andre Corbin, and uh, he is the person who coined the uh, uh, phrase the imaginal realm. Uh, And he was a scholar of um, Islamic, the Islamic uh, mystical tradition. And one of the points that he made that really struck me was, he said, before the Age of Enlightenment, so the Age of Enlightenment is the the age of reason. It's the dawning of the scientific worldview. You know, it's the last three, 400 years. Before that, in, in the religious traditions of the West, because we're speaking about Western history, the, the religious traditions of the West, be it Christian, Jewish, or Islamic, um, a lot of what they were concerned about were heavenly realms, you know, the heavenly realms of angels and all the things that happened there and how the angels would protect you, protect you and guide you. And, you know, how at the, the far end of heaven is where you found God. And, you know, there was, there was a lot of, you know, you had, uh, uh, um, the divine comedy, Dante's, uh, great poem about all the various realms. Um, it's what people were and religious scholars of the time. that's what they were preoccupied with is how do we navigate through these higher realms? In the Enlightenment, those higher realms became very woo-woo feeling, like, well, what does this mean? angels? you know, because a lot of the imagery is a bit hard to swallow. Um, and so what Corbin was saying is that from the age of the Enlightenment on, most of the religious traditions. They largely did away with all the middle realms. They talked about God and the absolute and and that extreme, unknowable mystery. Mm-hmm. And they talked about life on earth and you know being good and being aligned with that. But there wasn't much talk of the in-between and in his uh, uh, studies, you know, he was saying, no, these these realms, if you look back at the the great literature that he was reading from the Islamic tradition, these realms were considered to be real realms, real places that you could visit, not in your material form, but in a a, a higher internal form. Uh, and and he said what you realize by visiting these realms, and I can really relate to that. I mean, I got so excited when I started reading him a few years ago, is you go inside into these spiritual realms, uh, and You let go, you let go of the habit of seeing yourself as only a material being, and you find a way to to cross over and to begin to experience deeper dimensions of who you are. Uh, And if you go in far enough, you start to realize that the spiritual realms that you encounter aren't on the inside. Of the phys- that, that the physical body is actually on the inside of those spiritual realms. Mm. That that we have it a bit backwards because we're so identified with the meat, you know, with the, yeah. with the physical. But when you start to experience the higher dimensions of yourself, you realize that there's a, an inner universe which is actually what surrounds the material. The material is emerging inside the spiritual, not the other way around.
0: Mm. Yeah. So would you say in that way, the body is almost like a membrane for these realms, almost like the energy of these realms passes through us or doesn't pass through us, and we just have to be susceptible enough to, uh, I guess, be like the transmitter of these realms?
1: I would say yes. I wouldn't want to limit it to the brain. I'm sure the brain plays a part in it, but it's... You know, it's us. We're, we're the transmitter, not us, just the body, but whatever you are, whatever I am, right? That there's an individual sense of being. You know, in the Hindu tradition, they would talk about it as Atman. Uh, it's the deepest sense of self that exists. That is somehow like a, um, you know, it's like a radio that can tune in to certain frequencies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we are habitually tuned in to the frequencies of just this normal world. When we do spiritual work, we start tuning in to dimensions beyond this one, to possibilities beyond this one. And as we tune that dial, you know, we discover things and then we start to, Oh, we can tune it further out and further out, further out. And, and then if you're lucky, you find people who can, mutually tuned Mm. and you can start to meet in other places that are beyond this one and you start to realize wow this is this is a really big and mysterious reality (laughs) whatever this is this is much bigger than just the surface of one planet
0: yeah (laughs) yeah Mm. yeah i like the point of mutually tuning i feel as though there's power in numbers in that way if you have yes. a group that's linked up to the same wavelength, there's a certain power in the resonance in the transmission. You know, if if, yes. if the people are truly all on the same wavelength, there is a there's a power in that.
1: Mm. And you know, there's a um, satellite arrays. <clears throat> so if you take if you take uh, you know whatever uh, fifty meter wide satellite dish, and you put a whole bunch of them in a field, and the field is like two miles round, you end up with the effective power of a two-mile-wide radio dish in terms of what it can pick up it's from space. That. You could never build a two-mile-wide radio. There would be no way to hold the material up. Uh, but you can, you can essentially create the same effect with a lot of small ones. And that's what I feel in groups. Like I said, I was just on this retreat. When you're on retreat for days and you're working to tune in to the same frequency, you can pull down, you know, much higher dimensions of reality than you would have the power to on your own. Mm-hmm. You know, there's places we can go together that you can't go on your own.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. I feel as though that is exemplified using mantra or hurt mm-hmm. there's something very special about that. the The transmission of sound or through sound using sound with people you can really feel it you know anyone can attest to that i think that has experienced kirtan for an extended amount of time with uh, with a you know a decent amount of people there's something so powerful about the transmission of kirtan and specifically sanskrit that um, i think is really it touches upon that transmission somehow i'm not going to even try to explain how it happens but i think <laughs> there's a certain kind of transmission through the vibration of the word that um, is is very poignant and efficient, I guess you could say.
1: Mm-hmm, Definitely, and you know, there's something deeply powerful about experiencing, you know, like a chanting, uh, a spiritual chanting in in a in a group of people, and especially if it's a, a larger group of people, and you you hit a flow where it and, you know, initially it's a, it's a group of people chanting individually together and eventually it's a chant chanting through a group yeah uh, and yeah. you feel moved by the you feel moved by the mantra more than you feel like you're producing it
0: yeah you like become the mantra mhm yeah like you lose yourself in the vibration of the music
1: it's yes very
0: powerful and then also i think you know from that i think ideally the community takes that that connection um, Outside of the mantra, I think it's almost like that is to establish the kind of connection in transmission. and transmission. Then I think from that experience, that very powerful connection that someone has experienced, you take that out into the world and you you take that um, that resonance into one's life. You know, it's almost like that's the establishment of the connection. It's through sound, and you get maybe possibly some kind of downloads through the vibration. But then I think also we what we do is we create from that transmission.
1: Mm. Yes, yeah. and and the way I like to speak about that, whether it be in terms of chanting and mantra, or even you know other meditate other types of practice, meditation, or, but there are times when you're doing a practice like chanting, mantra, meditation, and you might be doing that alone, or you might be doing it in groups. To me, it's always more powerful in groups, no matter what it is. You know, even even if you're sitting in silent meditation, it's more powerful to do it uh, in a group. When you're doing that practice, you know, I always uh, suggest to people that you just give yourself to it, you know,
0: yeah,
1: give yourself to it 100%. Just go with it as far as you can go, you know, no concern about bringing anything back or what you might, don't even worry about having insights or seeing insights, just go, just disappear, you know, be one with the chanting to the extent that you forget yourself completely. I always encourage people to go so far into their practice that they experience self-forgetting. So you stop being aware even of yourself doing it. You're just, it's just the doing is happening. And that depth of surrender to the practice, it changes you, it it transforms you. Uh, and so then when the practice is done, like you were saying, you go back out into the world. And I always tell people, don't try to do anything different you know, don't, don't try to be different because you did did this practice, but just notice how you are different. Mm. Notice how in some situation where you always did A, you see yourself doing B and you're not doing B because you're, because your behavior modifying yourself and going, Oh, I always do A. So now I'll do B. You just spontaneously did B when you usually always did A, you know? And, and when that, you start to see that in your own experience, you, you're really seeing the transformative fruits of your practice. That it's, it's changing you at, at in deep ways far below your intellect.
0: Yeah, well said. That's so true, that's so true. With a sense of surrender, I think this is kind of what I was trying to touch upon at the beginning. With a sense of surrender to this divine force, it does seem like what comes about is a effortless changing in how we respond to the world. It's like, it's almost like we go from reaction to response, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a response that is just without, without a, um, there is discernment. Like there is a certain discrimination that comes in it, but it's without, like I said, it's effortless. It's, it's like without any kind of resistance. There is a, in that choosing between A and B, that other choice it seems like just becomes more natural and more fluid
1: like mm-hmm. there is
0: more just like a going with the flow one may say right and I, th- I think that is what it's really all about it's a transmutation of energy to truly transform um how we act with each other essentially to become more loving and compassionate to really to simplify it right it's to become a more uh, i guess a better person if you really want to say it in one way it's a better person to yourself and to the world at large
1: Right, I don't know. I think that's definitely true, um, and it's a good analogy to think about people who gain mastery in just about anything, you know. But if you if you think about, uh, say, a master chef, you know, so this person is a true master. Uh, they are seeing things differently, right? They, you, you could show them, you know, an ingredient in a spice and by the way it feels by the way it smells by the way it tastes it, it's it's giving them all kinds of information that me as just a non master chef you know coriander is coriander to me but i'm sure to a master chef there's you know infinite gradations of quality there and so they they're able to respond by, say, choosing the best spice for their dish, but it's not something they're they're not deducing that. it's not it's not uh, something that they're having to figure out. Yes. It's because they've developed a sensitivity that allows them to respond with more refinement to reality. And spiritual people, Spiritual masters the same way they've developed a sensitivity to these deeper currents of existence that allows them to respond in ways that often look more compassionate mm-hmm. uh more loving, more generous you know less self-centered but they're not doing it on purpose they're not thinking I should do that yeah it's just it's become a natural spontaneous response that's coming out of the the deepening of sensitivity that they've Uh, embody that they embody
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it's intuitive Mm -hmm. yeah there seems to be a general consensus of becoming more compassionate and loving once become once one becomes more mastered in the human experience right Right. there there seems to be some kind of obligation to be more loving right Um, you don't have to be but there seems like in the surrender to the flow when you surrender to this flow you surrender to other people, I guess you could say, or the situations. And it's not necessarily like um, uh, a sort of passiveness. You know, one can think it's passiveness and surrender. It's not, it's not like that at all. It's more so of like, like you said, how the master chef sees things differently. They see the ingredients differently in food. Well, I guess once one becomes more mastered within themselves, I see you differently. You know, Absolutely. I see everybody else differently. And what it really is, is i see a little bit of me in you or in, in anybody else in the listener whoever i see being a mastered human being very generally speaking it fe- i feel as though it's like seeing or feeling intuitively the connection between my seeming separation and your seeming separation and finding a coalescence between the two you know i
1: think i think you're absolutely perfectly right on that that's what happens in in spiritual development to your human self is you see everything differently, but certainly other people you start to see it's everything's emanating from the same source, Yeah, you know, which is why in, in like, in the the yogic tradition, they say namaste, which is the, that in me, that's the same in you, you know, I'm, I'm honoring that because what's looking through my eyes is exactly the same as what's looking through your eyes. You know, yeah. there isn't, there isn't me over here and you over there. There's one energy that's passing through two different identities, mm-hmm. but, you know, fundamentally, and if you think about it, we are exactly the same. So you are, you know, you're a person who has a name and you have a history, you have ideas, you have thought, you, you, all kinds of things that are different. And I'm a person, I have a name, blah, blah, everything's different but we're both we're both fundamentally a person with a name and an identity and a history with thoughts and ideas we're actually exactly identical mm-hmm. and and spiritual practice makes you makes you see what's the same in us more than you see what's different yeah there certainly are differences but you start to see that beyond those differences there are things that connect us that it becomes natural. Like loving doesn't become, doesn't feel loving. It just feels obvious. (laughs) Of course, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z because that person's exactly me. I know exactly how they feel Mm. because that's me over there. And that's how I would feel. Uh, Where the more that, as you said, you're embedded in ideas of separation, it's you over here and that person over there, and they have nothing to do with you. And basically you don't care. Uh, yeah. And you can't even really empathize. You, know, mm-hmm. you, you just aren't, aren't aware. And of course, we all exist somewhere between those extremes, um, <clears throat> generally.
0: Yeah, it's always both. Because the thing is, I feel like you could also not empathize and not care once one gets trapped into the, the idea of, well, we're all the same. You know, the, the, the trap of um, the identity of no identity, I guess you could say. I feel like true non-duality is is playing both parts. Is knowing that really deep down I'm you, you're me, but yet there is this this, this beautiful uh, dance between the different ways that we express our differences. Mm-hmm. And as long as we don't get lost in our differences and we don't get lost in the sameness, um, I that's like that's what a human being I feel as though is like that is the way. That's like that's the yin and the yang. It's this. It's this, um, it's both and neither, you know? (laughs) Right.
1: No, I think you're absolutely right. And the, the great opportunity is to, you know, dance beautifully between the universal and, and the particular aspects of reality and knowing Mm -hmm. that, that they're both real Mm -hmm. and they're both equally real. It's not that, It's not that the universal is more real than the particular; they're both real. It's just the particular is the one we've been conditioned to see more easily, uh, yeah. and so it's it's a little bit. It takes effort on our part to expand into the universal. That doesn't make it more true; it just makes it less familiar. Hmm. I
0: like that. That's good. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Because that's where you get into difficulties when you start to feel that the universal is somehow really real, and the particular isn't really real, and therefore you can do things against yourself or against other people and somehow feel like it's the right thing because you're taking a stand for what's universal, you know, what's what's beyond. And it doesn't make any sense in terms of non-duality because, of course, non-duality means not two, which means there can't be, in the end, the universal and the particular can't be two. Yeah. Right, so nothing there can't be two. So that's why in the Hindu tradition they say, in the end, Brahman, which is universal source, and Atman, which is the individ- the particular individual, are one. Uh, yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, the two are one.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's important to. Yeah, that's important to realize because we need to love the whole thing, mm-hmm. not just God
0: yeah <laughs> yeah love the layers of god as well
1: it, absolutely <laughs>
0: the waves and the ocean Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah it's it's just um it's it's a paradox at the end of the day it's a paradox and we're trying to speak about it so when you try to speak about it, it gets a little tricky because automatically we're put into a subject object orientation that's right literally there's two of us here <laughs> you mm-hmm. know going back and forth yeah. but i think with a keen eye one can come to realize the like we said the two is the two is one, or the two are one.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and that's the—that's always a tricky thing about language, you know. Because, as you said, our language is inherently created from, you know, a subject-object orientation. Uh, yeah. You know, that's basically the way it's—it's it's built. It's created by the consciousness of separation, which is the dominant consciousness. Uh, so. Often when you're writing, because I do a lot of writing, when you're writing about mystical things and about uh, higher realizations and non-duality, you have to use language in a bit of a poetic way, mm. somewhat metaphorical. You can't describe those things precisely. You just have to use words to gesture people in a direction where they could look to see it for themselves. mm
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, you
1: know, there isn't. There's no way to describe those higher realities precisely in words, uh, mm-hmm. you know, because they don't. Exi- they can't exist in words. They they exist in ex- in in people's experience. So that's mm-hmm. where people need to find them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the classic uh, finger pointing at the moon analogy. So Absolutely. Like you don't mistake the finger for the moon, or the words right. or what the words are symbolizing.
1: Exactly. And that's why some people, you know, just choose not to say anything.
0: (laughs) Honestly, Uh, yeah, I understand that. I can see that.
1: There's a, there's a, there's wisdom in that choice. Mm. Definitely. It's just not my choice. I I feel compelled to write. So uh, I do the best I can with words because that's the tool I have.
0: (laughs) I think you're doing a pretty good job, man.
1: (laughs) Oh, thank you. I appreciate that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Honestly, on that note, uh I think we can probably start to wrap this thing up. Um, do you have anything you'd like to say? <laughs> Any other words you'd like to use
1: yeah, uh well, first of all, Gary, it's been great to meet you, and it's really awesome. been been fun. You've given me the opportunity to think to speak about things publicly that I don't often speak about know <laughs> uh, so well, so I'm that's honored. well i am I am too. I'm honored you gave me the opportunity um I just, I love what I'm doing. Uh, I love these higher possibilities. I'm amazed at how much wisdom already exists in the human canon, you know, that mm. that you can find in all different forms. Uh, I, I honor and am absolutely awed by the infinite number of paths to the divine. Uh, and, you know, I'm... I'm having a fantastic time uh, helping as many people who find me uh, mm-hmm. as, as come to me. And, you know, with the, the desire in the end, for me, is to bring people together in a stabilized, you know, higher state of consciousness. To I like to talk about, you know, there's, whatever is the next highest possibility in consciousness, I want to create a base camp there. <laughs> that can then become the ground for going further.
0: Oh, wow. I like that. I like yeah, that. it's fun, inspirational, and like you said, it's fun. That's all. That's that's all that really matters, man. As long as you're really, truly enjoying the journey here. The cliche: the journey is the destination, right?
1: That's right. <laughs> well, you could you can imagine like from the, the from the divine's point of view, since she wants us to find her, right? Assuming she does then she would make spiritual work fun. Yeah. But otherwise, people won't do it. <laughs> so, that's
0: very true. Yeah. You know, right? that is,
1: she's clever that way.
0: Yeah. You to enjoy the process, man. I think that's what this whole thing is about, too. It's is like the path is really about enjoying life, right, to the, yes. the, the greatest extent that we can, right? I think we're supposed to enjoy it here. We're supposed to have a little bit of uh sense of play and wonder at this thing that we're in, right? To, I guess, transcend the suffering in a certain way. Um, yeah, I think that's I what agree. it's really about, man. So right. keep on keeping on.
1: Well, thank you. And you too, you're doing great work uh, with your interviews and your podcasts, uh, spreading you. spreading important information. So thank you so much again for this uh, opportunity.
0: Uh, thank you. Yeah, um, appreciate your time, effort, and wisdom that you brought to this conversation. Appreciate anybody that listened this long. And uh, Yeah. Let's keep on keeping on.
1: (laughs) Let's keep doing it. All right. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Jeff. Have
0: a good one.